0: So, uh, uh, I've literally just in my mind said um, that uh, last week I preached a sermon with seven hours sleep in 72 hours. Thursday, if you were at the outdoor service, I had to cram a 26 minute sermon into 10 minutes. And I was like, surely nothing's going to go wrong today. Well, here we are. So, all right. So, uh, a lot of announcements, uh, some stuff coming up. If you pay attention to that video. Uh, First of all, men's ministry. Uh, We have a men's ministry here called The Forge. A couple big dates coming up. Uh, The first one is we have a night at the gun range on October 27th. So we do this periodically. So if you're a guy right now, you're going to forget that. So go ahead and get your phone out. Uh, It's also on the app October 27th. Uh, I'll just talk loud. Sorry, Natalie. I'm good. I appreciate it. So October 27th, uh, night at the range. Sign up on the app. Uh, Then also we have a wild game night on November 17th, so if you miss uh, that thing, you can do the wild game night on November 17th, and so that will be a fun night. Uh, Lots of guys like to go hunting around here, and so we have all kinds of meat that night, but if you want to bring something, uh, feel free to do that. And then also we have our Guatemala trip coming up, so we have a couple trips to Guatemala. Uh, If you guys don't know, we take on a whole village down there. We sponsor a whole village And so we have a Guatemala trip coming up on October 29th. Uh, No, no, that's not. That's like two weeks. We have a meeting on October 29th. The trip is in February, and then the second trip will be in June or July. So if you're interested in going down to Guatemala with me, uh, we will have meetings about both of those trips coming up, especially if you friend one of the children down there. It would be a great chance to get down there and get to meet them. But that meeting will be on October 29th, 1230 right after the service. And then also, we believe in small groups here. Uh, We like to support our our people and get people in relationships. And so we're launching a whole new list of small groups starting in January. So if you are interested in helping facilitate and lead one of those, we're going to have a meeting on November 1st. That's a Wednesday night at 6.30. All right. And so uh, we are starting a new series today. And so uh, this series is going to be all about forgiveness. Uh, One of my favorite quotes is from a guy named C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis has this famous quote that he says that forgiveness is a great idea until you have somebody you actually have to forgive, and then it becomes a very complicated thing. And so we're going to talk all about that, and we're going to talk about giving people second chances. The reality is, if you know about forgiveness, forgiveness is something that I am convinced uh, we have to get better at. We have to become masters at if we want the life that God wants us to live. Um, And so that is something that we have to do. Jesus insisted that we forgive. And if that sounds funny to you, because you think about your life, you think about all of the things that have happened to you in your life, and you hear somebody say, you have to forgive people, lots of questions arise. Questions like, how many times do we have to forgive? And questions like, who do we have to forgive? And we're going to talk all about that in this series because those are the questions that Jesus' earliest followers asked as well. But before we can talk about the idea of forgiving others, or even in some cases forgiving ourselves, or for some of us, before we even talk about the idea of seeking forgiveness, we have to understand the forgiveness that's been given to us. So there's a quote that I'm going to put up here on the screen uh, here in a second. Do I need to hold that mic for the people in the back? Okay, sorry. Don't Just ignore those people. They're not here. And so, uh, so here's the thing. All right, this is a quote that should make you kind of pause and question it. But as you think through this quote, it's brilliant. It's from Richard Rohr, and here's what Richard Rohr says. Every time God forgives, God is saying that God's own rules do not matter as much as the relationship God wants to create with us. Think about that. Every time God forgives us, God is saying that God's own rules or... God getting his way maybe does not matter as much as the relationship that God wants to create with us. Now, in order to kind of get this idea, and we're going to talk through this throughout the whole series, I want to start with three narratives in the life of Jesus. A couple of these we've talked about before, and I'm aware of that, but these are interesting narratives. And so the first one takes place, Jesus is teaching in a very large home. And so he's teaching, and in the crowd that day are scribes and Pharisees and sages, which are like religious leaders and teachers around there. And they're all gathering around because Jesus is getting a reputation, not only for the things he's able to do, but also the things that he's saying. And one of the questions that's starting to arise is, is this guy the Messiah? Is this the guy that everybody's been promised and waiting for? And so everybody's got questions, what's going on with this guy? These people are a little suspicious of him. Some of them are a little jealous of the crowd that he's getting, but everybody there is curious as to what's going on. And so all of a sudden he's teaching in this large house and all of a sudden there's some debris that starts to fall from the ceiling and everybody's kind of standing there. And so it'd be like right now if all of a sudden, and it's possible because this building's old, like some debris started falling on some of you guys. A couple months ago, we had some ants upstairs and there was a lady sitting over there and she came up afterwards and she was like, there were ants falling on me in the service. And I was like... That's a problem. And so, uh, so, uh, so, anyway, so that happened. And so we fixed the problem, so you don't have to worry. But uh, so imagine you're sitting here, and all of a sudden, pieces of the ceiling start to fall on you. And all of a sudden, this little hole starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, everybody standing there would have seen this most amazing scene. There are some guys on this roof, and they're lowering one of their friends down in front of Jesus. Now, what we find out is that this guy is that he is paralyzed. Now, remember, in the ancient world, um, if somebody had something that was ailing them or a sickness or a disease, it was because of sin. They got that because God or the gods were casting judgment on this person. So this person is now paralyzed. They're being lowered down into into this room. And so everybody's kind of curious as to what's going on. But they're also a little bit excited because for most of them in that room, they didn't come for a sermon. They came to see the magic show. They came to see the tricks. They came to see the supernatural. And so all of a sudden, this guy gets lowered down and he's standing before Jesus. No, he's not standing. He's paralyzed. He's laying before Jesus. All right. We'll edit that part out. Nobody's listening anyway. So he's he's (laughs) paralyzed before Jesus laying there. And Jesus says the most unusual thing. He looks at this guy, and here's what he says in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, verse 5, they can't hear me in the back. When Jesus saw their faith, there we go. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And what's amazing about this statement is that's not even what they came there for. That's not why they lowered their friend down to the ceiling. They didn't come there so that their sins would be forgiven. They lowered him down so that he would be healed. Because they've heard that Jesus can do these type of amazing things. But then the other part for the crowd setting there has to be erased. How can Jesus even do this? There's a couple problems. First of all, he doesn't even know what this guy's done. Like, again, the setting is that if you have something like that, it's probably because something bad you've done or your family's done or a, a lineage of bad mistakes So he's forgiving this guy. He doesn't even know what he's done. He doesn't know what his story is. He has nothing, no context for what this guy's done. And so the crowd starts to murmur because there's another problem. Only God can forgive. And so now all of a sudden you have somebody saying that he's forgiving the sins of this person who doesn't even know what the sins are. And he's acting as if he has the authority to actually do this. Now, there is a process in their world for forgiving sins. But it involves a temple and a priest and a sacrifice. And it's a very complicated and very violent process. Everything in this situation is wrong. This guy is standing here before Jesus, laying here before Jesus. He's paralyzed. Everything's wrong with this setting. And then Jesus, he realizes it. And so there's this line, and you got to be careful what you think around Jesus. Jesus looks at everybody there and he says, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Because they're thinking the same thing that all of us would have been thinking if we were there that day. What's going on? Who is this guy? What has this guy done? And how does this guy even think that he has the ability to do this? So everybody's kind of curious and and Jesus finally says, okay, guys, listen, you're sages, you're Pharisees, you're scribes. You're the smartest people in the room. Let me ask you a question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? It's a complicated question, right? Because we say, well, it'd be, it would actually be your sins are forgiven because of the grace that God gives and the freedom in which he gives it. But not in their culture and their context at all. But for, for them, actually, for Jesus, it might even be said it's easier to say, Guy, get up and walk. I mean, I can do this. So which is easier? And then he says in verse ten, he says this, verse ten should come up. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, so it's Jesus referring to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. No temple, no priest, no sacrifice with just a word. And the man laying before him is literally powerless to do anything to earn it, to deserve it. So the story ends that Jesus, and I love this, he says, your sins are forgiven. Everybody's curious as to what's going on. And then he looks at the guy and he says, okay, now we'll do the part you wanted. Rise up and walk, take your mat and leave. And he does. So shortly after that is a story we referenced not too long ago. It's this story. So here's this guy, and this is what Jesus does. He gives people second chances, not only in their spiritual life, but also in their life. So this story takes place again. Jesus is teaching in a large home. There's a large crowd that is gathered. Simon is there. Simon is also a Pharisee. These guys are always trying to trap Jesus and be able to prove that Jesus isn't who he says he is or who the crowds believe that he is. And so Simon is throwing this banquet, and Jesus is the guest of honor. And so they're sitting there, and they leave the windows and doors open. That was very custom in their culture, so people could walk by and kind of hear what was going on and see what was going on. And so there, and all of a sudden, in all of this crowd, these people gathered in this house, Jesus is sitting at the head table there with Simon and his guests, and all of a sudden, a woman enters. And we've talked about this one before. And this woman enters, and she enters, and she does the most peculiar thing. She goes, and she lays down... At the feet of jesus and so imagine they're all sitting around this table we actually talked about this in the table series when i had a large table here and so they're sitting around this table and all of a sudden this woman sets at jesus feet now here's what they all know that that jesus isn't they think aware of this woman has a reputation you ever know anybody that's got a reputation don't elbow anybody some of you have a reputation probably right but she's got a reputation. And everybody there knows her business and knows who she is. They know her as a sinner. And so Jesus is sitting there at the guest of honor table, and he's allowing this woman to not only sit at his feet, but all of a sudden she opens up this jar of perfume, and she pours it on Jesus' feet, and she starts to clean his feet. And then she starts to weep. And she's literally cleaning Jesus' feet with the tears coming down her eyes. And she's drying his feet with her hair. Okay, guys, this is weird, right? You should never do this in any context to anybody. But they're all sitting there and they're watching it. And the most amazing thing happens with Jesus. He never acknowledges it. He just keeps eating. And everybody else, you got to imagine, just like the guy lowered down from the ceiling, everybody else is looking at this. Jesus is just acting like this is just like a Tuesday, you know, like, yeah, the women at the feet. Yeah, I get that thing. Okay. So he's pretending like this is normal. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he just starts telling a story. You have like that crazy uncle that like you're sitting around a table at Thanksgiving and you're all talking about one thing. And all of a sudden he just launches into a story about something you have no idea what he's talking about. All right. This is Jesus in this moment. At least they think. And so Jesus says, all right, I got a story for you. All right. So let's say that there's two people, and they owe this money lender a great debt. And the debt that they owe is based on this idea that they, he's lended money to them, okay? And, and all of a sudden now it's time to pay them back. But there's interest that's accrued to this, and, and there's all these problems. And, and so let's say that one person owns about 50 denarius, which would be about, you know, a denarius is about one day's wage. So, so they owe about 50 days worth of pay, a month and a half. So, But all of a sudden now, work's been hard or whatever. They can't pay this back. So that's one situation. The second situation is another guy owes the same money lender about 500 denarius. That's about a year and a half's worth of wages. And so they both go to the same money lender. One owes about $50, which is a big deal, but eh, $50, you know, 50 days, we can figure that out. But a year and a half, a year and a half, they owe back. And they go to the money lender and the money lender looks at both of them and they realizes that they can't pay and so he just wipes the slate clean for both of them. Which by the way doesn't happen. All right? It doesn't work like that if you don't know, okay? So so all of a sudden their slates are clean. So everybody's sitting there and they're like that doesn't happen, Jesus. Just like it happened in our culture. And so all of a sudden Jesus then asks another question. Who would actually be more grateful? The person that owed a little bit, they got removed. Or the person that owed a great deal and got removed. And so we'll ask you the same question. You don't have to answer out loud. Who would be more grateful? The person just with a little bit of the problem or the person with a massive problem? Which one of them would actually love the money lender more? And then the same scene that we painted earlier this year in the table series is they're sitting there, Jesus is telling this story. And the whole time, he's looking at all of the men sitting around the table with him. But then all of a sudden, as he finishes the story, his gauge turns. And now for the first time, he's looking at the woman. And he continues to speak to the men sitting around the table. And he says to the men, specifically Simon, sitting around the table, he says, do you see this woman? Because the reality is nobody did. They knew who she was. They knew her reputation. She's a sinner. She's not even worthy to be here. She's definitely not worthy to be if Jesus is who he claims to be at Jesus' feet. So we have a whole problem here, Jesus. So it's not even about do we see her. No, there's a whole sin issue here. There's a whole cleaning issue here. There's no whole cleansing issue here. And Jesus looks and he says, do you see this woman? Because he does. And here's the problem. See, there's a lot of people, maybe some of you in this room, that you come into places like this, or maybe just out there, and because of your past, because of what you've done or what's been done to you, you feel like nobody cares. You feel like nobody sees you. And then the question is, does God care? Does God see me? I mean, this woman, she doesn't belong. At least that's what they think. And in verse 47, Jesus says this. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins. So here's the thing. Let's not pretend there's many sins. There's a lot. I know who she is. Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Because see, Simon, she's showing her love for me. You haven't, but she is. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Simon, let's not pretend. I know that there's many sins. There's no secrets. All of this. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, he's not only looking at her, but now he talks directly to her. And in verse 48, he says this, Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Now, the emotion of these moments might be lost on us. But they shouldn't be. And here's why. I don't know if anybody told you, okay? But you're a sinner. But it's okay, because I am too. Like, I got sinned. I've already sinned once this morning. I'll be honest. When my mic didn't start working, I thought some bad thoughts in my head, okay? (laughs) I shouldn't, and it's not the people in the back's fault, but I did. Like, I thought some bad thoughts. I was like, here we go again, okay? So here's the thing. We all sin. And yet, here is this Jesus who has this ability to forgive, like, on the spot, like, to be able to forgive. And for a lot of people, this is a problem, because here's the thing. If Jesus is able to do this, not only for them, but also for us. See, these guys sitting around the table that day and the guys in that house, see, they make a business out of people fearing God. Now, we should fear God because God's big and mighty and it's hard to understand. But, But fear, like you should be afraid, like we can, I don't know, control you, See, if Jesus really is who he says he is and has the ability to do what he says he he can do, fear with God could accidentally be replaced with gratitude for God and love for God because you realize that God is a God of second chances and third and fourth. And maybe for some of us, we're on the 140th, and that's okay. Now, to help you understand this, um, these guys understand that problem. If Jesus takes away the fear of God and replaces it with gratitude towards God, we have a religious problem. And so they work uh, against Jesus and they work against his followers. And as you guys know, the story after these stories eventually gets played out to the point where they decide they're taking Jesus down. Because he's working against the power and the control that they have. And so eventually they have Jesus arrested, they have him tried, um, and and they convince the Roman government that he's working against the Roman government, even though Jesus never did that. And, And so they're kind of convincing people, and eventually he stands before Pilate. And Pilate is the most powerful man in that region, and Pilate is actually the man that has the opportunity and the ability to save Jesus. And we're not going to get into it now, but there's this famous exchange between Jesus and Pilate. And imagine this. You're looking at the most powerful man who thinks he's the most powerful man in the region, who's literally your life hangs in his hands. And Jesus looks at him and he says, listen, you misunderstand this situation. It's not you that's going to take my life. It's I that's going to give my life. And eventually it comes to be that Jesus will be crucified. And he's taken to the place that they called the place of the skull, Golgotha, where they crucified him for everybody to see. And Jesus was crucified there. And, and, and some of us, when we think about crucifixion, now we know many details, but the Bible doesn't talk about it a lot. And the reason it doesn't talk about it is because everybody that heard these stories and everybody that was there, they knew what it was. They had seen it. They had heard it. The screams of the men and women. They had smelled it. They knew what it was. And they also understood the point of crucifixion. The point of crucifixion was a deterrent, as much as it was a punishment. It, It was to tell people, this is what happens if you don't fall in line with what we're doing. The other goal of crucifixion was oblivion. See, here's the thing. We know the cross of Jesus. It's crucified, that cross. We know about that. There were thousands and thousands of people crucified before and after Jesus. And the reason you don't know any of their stories is because they were wiped off the face of the planet. Eventually, their bodies would be peeled off of the cross and thrown into a fire in Gehenna where the fires always burned. And this would be Jesus' fate. But there's two things that happened in those moments. As he hung there, two things happened, two narratives that further this idea of God's forgiveness, not only for them, but also for us. The first thing that happens is there's two criminals that hang there with him. And one of the criminals starts hurling insults at Jesus, saying things like, if you're really the Savior, just save yourself and save us while you're at it, if that's who you are. And then all of a sudden, the most likely, unlikely of defenders comes to Jesus' aid. And it's the other guy on the cross. And he starts to defend Jesus. And so you have these two criminals hanging there who who honestly maybe deserve, at least in the way justice is thought of, deserve to be there. And this one sinner who defends Jesus, he recognizes his own guilt. He owns his admission that he deserves death and he deserves to be crucified. But this Jesus doesn't. And after he defends Jesus, there's this little exchange in Luke chapter 23 where, where this guy, he looks at Jesus, he cries out to Jesus, And he says to him, not yet, sorry for first people, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, let's be honest. If you're hanging on a cross, right, like the two people before, the paralyzed guy and the woman at his feet, we don't know what happened next, but we like to believe that they went on to take advantage of their second chance, that they became good people, that maybe they didn't sin as much. Maybe they were more forgiving. Maybe they were more kind people. We don't know the story, but we want to believe that they maybe turned their lives around, that they repented, that they became better people. But this guy, let me go on and tell you, when you're hanging on a cross like this, um, repentance is pretty meaningless. What are you going to repent? I mean, how? Rededication, when you only got a few more moments to live, doesn't seem as important. We're all sorry when we're facing the penalty of our actions, but for this guy, I mean, he literally has nothing to promise, nothing to offer. I mean, he's about to die. He has no bargaining power. He can't say from this point on, Jesus, I'm going to be a good guy. Oh, is that like 30 more minutes? Great, okay. And then the most amazing thing happens is Jesus decided to be extravagantly unfair, unfair. And in verse 23, chapter 23, verse 43, listen to this. Jesus answered him. And the reason I love these words is because what we understand about crucifixion is the way that they would hang you. All of your weight would press down onto your chest. So in order for you to breathe or to even be able to speak, you would have to pull yourself up on those nails, which means every breath and every word that you said was incredibly painful. In fact, the word we've talked us for, the word excruciating. You ever like, you know, like me, you ever hit your head you know, your hand with a hammer and you're in excruciating pain? The word excruciating literally means from the cross. And so every word that Jesus spoke was painful. And yet he takes this moment with all of the pain he's already experiencing he raises himself up and experiences more pain for this awful human being. And here's what he says. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now I don't know what you think these words mean, but I think what Jesus did is he just forgave him. And the reason I can say that And the reason maybe this guy felt even comfortable to ask that is because of what happens right before this. Jesus hanging on the cross. Again, every word, every breath costs him. It's painful. And maybe if you've misunderstood Jesus, you need to pay attention to this one little remark that we often forget happened. Jesus raises himself on the cross in verse 34, and he says this, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And who is the them? Years later... Paul, who was a Pharisee himself, who we don't believe was in those circles with Jesus that day, but he might have been as a young Pharisee. And so years later, Saul will have all of this guilt and shame because of the life that he lived before he got introduced to Jesus. And so there becomes this situation with him where he finally follows Jesus, his whole life turns around, and he writes this letter and he writes it to Rome the same source of the people that eventually had Jesus put on the cross. And so he writes this letter to the Roman Christians, and he has this interesting idea. He says, what you have to understand about this thing that Jesus offers us is he says this, you see, at just the right time, at just the right time when we were powerless, or or maybe for some of us a better word is clueless. Like, you know, for some of us, Jesus died for us, and some of us, we were clueless. We were powerless. We're still making bad decisions. We're still hurting people. We're still doing the wrong thing. But here's what Paul says. He says, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might dare die to die. And then he says, but God and any time any of the writers use this, this little phrase, and they didn't have the word but in, in the Hebrew and in, in the Greek, but, but it was, it was a, an extension of an idea and a separation of an idea, or an extension of one idea separating it another idea. And, and here's what he says. He says, but God, which means that God is in a whole category all to himself. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... While we were still the man on the mat, while we were still the woman at his feet, while we were still the people gathered around the cross, while we were still the people hurting people, being mean to people, judging people, gossiping about people, while we were still the people where Jesus would say, why is it that you think these things in your heart? Christ died for us. He offers us, Grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And grace, just so you know, is so much of a bigger word than even forgiveness. But forgiveness is a piece of this. And in fact, here's what Philip Yancey says, and I love this because you need to know this about you. Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. You're already as loved as you're going to be. No amount of spiritual calisthenics or renunciations. No amount of knowledge gained from seminaries and divinity schools. No amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes. And grace also means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. One of my favorite writers is a guy named Brennan Manning. If you're not familiar with Brennan Manning... Uh, he, w- he was a priest, um, but struggled his whole life with alcoholism and relationship issues and all kinds of things. And he, he writes all of these amazing books about his struggle. He's very open about it. Um, but towards the end of his life, he wrote this book called All is Grace. And it's this amazing book. Um, but here's what he says about this forgiveness that he finally not only believed, because he always believed, but actually accepted to be true. And here's what he says. He says, do you believe that the God of Jesus loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness? but on fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and even in the evening rain, that he loves you when your intellect denies it, your emotions refuse it, your whole being rejects it. Do you believe that God loves you without condition or reservation and loves you this moment as you are and not as you should be? He goes on to say, grace is sufficient. Even when we huff and puff with all of our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. What you have to know is that on that cross, Jesus loved you, forgave you, wants more for you. Jesus keeps insisting that he came to give us life and life to a fool. And part of that full life is a life that has the ability to recognize the second chance you've been given, to recognize the forgiveness that you've been given, but it also includes the ability to forgive. It includes the ability to recognize that what's been given to you is also meant to be offered to others. And that becomes the sticky part of forgiveness, doesn't it? As C.S. Lewis once famously said, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And that's hard. And that's why we're going to end here today and talk about that part next week. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the grace that you give us every day. I thank you for the grace that you gave me in these last 30 minutes. God, I thank you for the love that you give us. God, my prayer is that we never lose sight of the hope that we have in you. We never lose sight of the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy that you give us every day, every morning. God, we never lose sight of the grace that you gave us on that cross that day when we, me included, were all sinners who did not deserve it, had not earned it, and to be honest, can't even do anything to earn it or deserve it. And yet you keep coming back to that table. You keep coming back to that love, to that grace. You keep extending it to us. You give us second chances. You give us fourth chances. God, may we never forget that. And may we be people whose lives reflect that. Reflect that love. Reflect that grace. Reflect reflect that mercy. And God, as we go into this moment of worship, God, my prayer is that these songs we sing, that we believe them. God, my prayer is if there's any more microphones that don't work, if there's any more sound things that happen, none of that matters right now. All that matters is these words we're about to sing, and then it's an offering back to you of our understanding of what you've already given us. God, help us to be people who live in the second chance, but also extend that to the world around us. So we love you and we thank you, in your son's name we pray, amen. Every week we come to this time where we celebrate communion. So this is a time we take a moment and pause, and maybe for some of you just to breathe and to pray. And so as we sing together, here's what we ask, is when you're ready, you take those emblems that represent the sacrifice of Jesus for you, that love, that grace, and that mercy for you, and you take that whenever you're ready.